Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, there is a heated debate around the latest efforts to slow traffic through Aberdeen between Queen and Longwood. Also, we hosted the Chief's Town Hall with Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's going on on the west end of the city, more specifically Aberdeen Avenue between Queen Street and Longwood Road. Now, this is not a new issue. Uh, there's been some concern about uh, traffic and about uh, accidents and a number of other things there. Uh, and this goes back even to the last term of council. And uh, it's uh, it's well back on the front burner right now. There is a heated debate about the latest efforts to slow traffic through Aberdeen in that stretch between Queen and Longwood uh, during school arrival and dismissal hours. Public Works Committee voted earlier this week by a uh, count of 7 to 2 to create a flashing 40 kilometer per hour zone. Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, though, had some objections and some concerns about that. And uh, he's going to join us right now to explain exactly what uh, is on his mind and why he has some problems with it. Uh, Lloyd, thank you for the time. I'm glad you could jump in on with us today. Yeah, I am. I heard you hit the button and the phone dropped. Well, who knows what's it. That's the gremlins in the line, I guess. That's the way things go. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about your concerns. I mentioned just in the preamble, Lloyd, as we were trying to hook up with you, uh, this was a debate in the last term of council, too, and there was some concern about... Uh, Well, I I, I know that some people are trying to pit this as lower city versus upper city, but I think there's something a little more to it. Explain what your your read is on this. Well, my issue is that you're right. This has been around for a while, and and, uh, congestion coming from the escarpment down below, uh, particularly from my constituents in Ancaster and in the West Mountain, too, are running into significant congestion. One of our competitive advantages, we've always argued to to Hamilton over Toronto, is our uncongested roads. And, and I'm worried that's starting to change, and, and some of these moves will make that worse. I don't know, Bill, I think you probably cut down early enough to miss it, but every morning the 403 is backed up as far as uh, sometimes Wilson Street, Fiddler's Green Road, and, and adds about another 20 minutes to half an hour to a trip to get down there now because of the congestion. We have four lanes going into two with the link and the 403 merging. And uh, so uh, if we're looking to calm traffic, that's not a problem. It's calm because of congestion right now. And so when you work your way down the escarpment, down the 403 or down Queen Street, um, you have two choices how to get into the city. And and most of our employment is in the downtown area. And uh, so you get off either at Aberdeen if you're going south of Main Street or you get off of Main if you're going into into the Main King area. And uh, one of the items that concerned me was they're proposing to have 24-hour parking on both sides of Aberdeen Avenue coming yeah. in. That's the, that's the main issue I had, and uh, because you're taking away 50% of the capacity of the road then. And uh, quite frankly, I think the people from outside Ward 1 have the, um, uh, the right to be able to get to work and get home. And... Uh, you know, I, this is going to have impacts on other residential streets because people will be ducking over now to go run up residential streets because they, it's congested. And, and of course, um, you know, it dumps more traffic on Main Street, which is already full, and dumps more traffic on the 403 between Everdeen and Queen. So this is not about traffic calming. It's already calmed. Uh, and I drive it every day and uh, sometimes twice a day. And so I've witnessed it. I've put many resolutions through council to get the MTO to widen 403. They've made a, a public statement through the Minister of Transportation that they're going to start the environmental assessment. Well, we just got a letter last week at council that, uh, yes, they're going to do that environmental assessment, but they haven't found the funds to move ahead with it yet. Yeah, that, that's not going to happen for years if it happens. Well, it'll happen. It has to happen. And, and uh 
because it's just getting progressively worse. We have the provincial government trying to make it easier for uh, builders to put homes up by reducing development charges and taking away a lot of the controls that the municipality had on giving approvals, but they're not building the infrastructure to handle it. So you build, you know, two, 3,000 new homes a year, that's two to 3,000 minimum cars that are hitting the streets every day trying to get to work. And uh, it, that's a problem. And here we have a situation now on Aberdeen Avenue, and, and it's been an ongoing debate where the downtown councillors feel that the arterial roads are their roads, and they should be able to calm them and, and make it happy for their for the residents. And I get their motivation for doing that. However, we've also argued that the arterial roads belong to the whole city, not just a, one particular councillor. And uh, to congest, purposely congest uh, Aberdeen Avenue, and I would argue that anybody who bought a home on Aberdeen Avenue knew it was an arterial road connecting to the 403 and to expect traffic. But after they move in, they want to get the traffic calmed down by chasing people off it, by congesting it further, which it already is, by having all-day, 24-hour parking on both sides of Aberdeen Avenue. So that was the thrust of the debate. The whole issue about uh, whether it should be 40 kilometers per hour, 30 kilometers an hour, was deferred until the next Public Works Committee meeting. Uh, the province has now given the authority to municipalities to put 40-kilometer limits on all neighborhood streets and uh, through school zones, which I believe is 100 meters each side of a school, to reduce it to 30 kilometers per hour. That debate has not been had yet. It was deferred. We ran out of time because we had a public works meeting that was starting. So that will come up again in two weeks. Let me ask you something uh, about that. Because uh, I remember having a discussion with you about three or four years ago about this when uh, it was Councillor Aidan Johnson at that time uh, who was, was looking to do something along the same lines as, as uh, Councillor Wilson is now proposing. Uh, and you brought up a, a rather interesting point that I'm not so sure if it was part of the debate yesterday or the earlier this week. Uh, Aberdeen Avenue is also designated as an emergency alternative route, is it not? I mean, if there's a problem yes. on the 403, traffic is diverted onto Aberdeen. Correct. It's an EDR route. And, All right. And, um so it's a detour uh, route, uh, as is Highway 52, Highway 5, uh, and it's particularly problematic in Hamilton because there's very few escarpment accesses. And I don't know if you remember that tragedy a couple of years ago where there was a, someone um, went on the highway and, and was instantly killed. So the, the protocol, the OPP, has to close the highway in both directions mm -hmm. to do their investigation. And it plugged up roads everywhere because you can't get up and down the escarpment easily. Once 403 closed, Wilson Street can only take so many cars. Queen Street can only take so many cars. And coming the other way, it was, it was the same problem. And we, we had another fatality as a result of that where a little girl was waved in front of a car that was dead stopped trying to get up side streets to get around this and, and uh, was struck by a car coming in the other direction. And so it, it is more complicated on streets like Aberdeen because it is an EDR route, because we do have, and when you're coming down the 403 in the morning, you're into bright sun, you do have that curve in the uh, right at the golf course. And so there is a higher number of accidents uh, uh, on that particular stretch of highway. Or once you get to that Queen King uh, basket weave where you're weaving in other traffic, other collisions happen there which means all the traffic is diverted onto Aberdeen. And if we allow parking on both sides of the street, that's going to make it impossible for uh, to get around. Um, and, and, and so it goes back to the situation. Do our arterial roads, um, 
Yeah. Well, let me well, ask you about that, Lloyd. I mean, because you've used that term, and I want people to understand exactly uh, what that entails. When you ha- are dealing with a quote-unquote arterial road as opposed to a residential road, uh, is there any difference? Or are there any parameters? Are there any 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 levels that, that in other words, uh, you know, is traffic calming measures that some of these counselors are talking about right now, do they apply, and can they be applied to arterial roads? Oh, absolutely. They can if that's the council's wish. I mean, staff always tell us council is supreme almighty. And and uh, if the council, majority of council agree that, for example, synchronized lighting on Main and King, uh, um, you know, some people would like to get rid of that to slow down traffic and rather have people zoom through. But those are arterial roads, and that's a council decision, not a local ward councillor decision. And and as, as all decisions are, no, uh, the legal department once told me, and I've never forgot it, that we don't report to a councillor; we report to council. So you need a majority vote, and uh, so absolutely, you can do what you want with any road you want, providing you have a majority of council supporting it. All right, uh, Lloyd, we're going to leave it at that for now. Obviously, this is a debate that's not over yet. I appreciate your input into this this morning, though. Okay, you're welcome. That's uh, Ancaster Councilor Lloyd Ferguson. Maureen Wilson is the counselor for that area, Ward 1 uh, in the downtown area. Uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us her perspective and her rationale for this. Maureen, thank you for coming in here and uh, and trying to give us an, an alternative view from what Councilor Ferguson was just talking about. A- explain to us, if you could, exactly uh, what, what led you to, to move some of these ideas about uh, traffic calming measures. And I know that's a rather large umbrella term, but you had some specific ideas that you'd like to see implemented. Uh, Thank you, Bill, for having me. Uh, First and foremost, I think it's important uh, for all listeners and residents to understand that this city has um, adopted a Vision Zero policy. And just this past April, we um, passed a Vision Zero action plan. And Vision Zero means uh, cities aiming for zero fatalities and injuries as a result of um, car um, crashes with with pedestrians and with our most vulnerable users. Um, cities across North America have adopted this. Because at the heart of it, it, we understand that drivers are human beings and drivers make mistakes and that the design of our streets can actually um, heighten those mistakes. In terms of Aberdeen, the city staff, the traffic experts have acknowledged the concerns of the residents. They have said in print that their concerns about safety are justified. We don't have the money right now to reconstruct the street, but what we can do is put certain um, uh, inexpensive things in place, which gives those most vulnerable users, and I'm talking about our children. We have at least four to five schools in the area where kids are walking. over 2,000 children just in that area are going to school every day. Um, so the changes are just enabling parking to give those children who are walking to school um, and staff have acknowledged are vulnerable because they're right near speeding cars, a little bit of a buffer. Now, in what you're proposing to do here uh, with uh, parking on both sides, 24-hour parking, uh, are you envisioning creating a buffer then between the, the sidewalks where the students are and, and where the traffic is, which is essentially, if I understand this correctly, uh, going to narrow the traffic down to one lane each way? That's correct. Plus, okay. you'd also like to see a reduction in the speed limit. Yes, and, and, and in fact, that is, that is happening throughout the city. Bill 65 now enables um, municipalities 
to reduce their speed limits to 40 kilometers an hour. Um, and the city uh, talked about that yesterday, and the overwhelming majority of councillors were on board, including myself. Yeah, and we've seen this implemented. I've, I've had Councillor Marilla on the program before over in the other end of town, of course, and he had that done, I guess, like almost a couple of years ago now on Kenilworth Avenue. That's right. And he tells me it's had great success in, in reduction right. of potential fatalities and, and p- collisions, for that matter, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I can envision some point in the future where that is going to be the standard uh, speed limit, I guess, on, on, on city streets. It's going to drop down uh, to 40, but we're not there yet, or at least Council's not there yet, are they? Well, uh, Council uh, approved the report. Um, or at least the Public Works Committee did, and of course it will go to Council next Wednesday. Is there, is there a middle ground here? Because obviously there's some conflicting points of view here. Uh, is, is there a compromise here? And I, I understand that your, your desire here for public safety, and I, we've heard from the number of the residents, you're, you're blessed to have very proactive resident groups uh, in the ward that you represent, and, and obviously they've spoken about this. Uh, do, you, do you dig your heels in and say this is the way it's going to have to be? Well, I, I think that it's interesting because if if you travel into, I know you had Councillor Ferguson on uh, prior to me, if you tra- travel into Ancaster on Rousseau, there is one lane in and one lane out. And there are um, beautiful medians dividing that street at certain points. That's right. Um, that was done intentionally. And I have, um, I, I know firsthand <laughs> that in the morning, and in the afternoon, at the end of the workday, uh, that access is chock full of cars. The residents would prefer it that way. They don't mind their commute, uh, a few minutes added onto their commute, because they don't want that street to be widened, um, just like the streets in Hamilton are wide. So why do they not want that street to be widened? Why did they put in those traffic calming measures, not only on Russo, but on Wilson? Because they want... Um, safety for their most vulnerable, meaning their, their um, aging residents and their young children. They don't want cars speeding through their community. And all I'm asking is for those existing communities, um, we don't want that either. So they're, they're, this is an inexpensive, reasonable proposal. And if you look at Aberdeen right now, there is intermittent parking. So I know that street very well. And most users of that street, because they prefer not to travel behind a bus, it is primarily um, just two lanes anyway. It's going to be an interesting debate uh, at City Council about exactly, uh, as other people weigh in on this too, I know it already went to Public Works. Uh, We'll be talking more about this, I'm sure, in the days ahead, Maureen. Thank you so much for uh, coming on today and explaining this. I'm, I'm really glad that we've got both sides of this. Thank you so much. Maureen Wilson, of course, the counselor for Ward 1 in the uh, east end of the city, west end of the city, rather. Uh, and again, the very contentious uh, con- concerns about what to do with Aberdeen continues with Hamilton City Council. We'll see how they debate this later on today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is the uh, Chief's Town Hall. Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio. Uh, lots to talk about. Uh, obviously, traffic issues, uh, public safety issues, neighborhood issues. Uh, we can go on and on, stop signs, etc., and enforcement. I mean, we run the gamut. Uh, obviously, this cannabis stuff is still front of center for an awful lot of people, although uh, there's some uh, interesting news about that over the last little while. Uh, but welcome back to the show, Chief. Good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. Uh, first and foremost, I want to talk about what happened last weekend. I want to get right into that because uh, there was a lot of back and forth about what happened, what should have happened, who did what, who didn't do what, who could have and should have done something differently. Uh 
Let's let's start at the beginning uh, before we get to Gage Park and, and what happened at, at the Pride ceremonies. Uh, and the greater question that City Council is going to deal with right now has to do with what's been going on at the City Hall forecourt for the last, uh, I guess, few months, really, yep. on Saturdays. Uh, it's a protest. Uh, you know, I, I think somebody used the term peaceful protest, and somebody else emailed me and said, well, that's questionable as to whether it's peaceful. Uh, what role do police play in a situation like this? These are there are certain elements within the the, the people that are showing up there every week that are antagonistic. Um, some are suggesting, as a matter of fact, uh, stating that uh, that these guys cross the line, that this is hate speech, and that that's against the law, and that police should be stepping in. Uh, how do you approach this, and and how do you how do you basically police something like this? Yeah, so you talked about right at the outset, and we're talking about the difference between peaceful protest and criminality. And this is not new to us. It's not new to the Canadian context. And I was actually at uh, the Simon Weisenthal uh, Dinner for Peace last night, and it was the UN ambassador for USA talking about exactly the same thing, which is uh, hate speech, um, civil rights, uh, the right to protest, and then uh, the ability to take action when you do have breaches. So our balancing act, so to speak, is between, and we have a constitutional obligation as police to facilitate peaceful protest. Uh, it's when it changes to criminality or when it changes to a riot or an awful assembly, uh, those are all different questions. What I can tell you is relative to any protest we get in the city, and we do this not just with this protest, uh, but we did it actually on last Saturday with two things. One was the Yellow Jacket protest, which has been a standing item at City Hall, and we do monitor it to ensure that it doesn't breach uh, the criminal code in terms of hate speech and otherwise. Uh, secondarily, the Pride event, and there are different contexts to that, uh, we develop operational plans for these things, and we did in this case. And in fact, what's not being stated is we had additional resources. I won't explicitly state the exact numbers, but we had a large contingent. And if you see the photos, you'll see that many of the members are in public order unit uh, garb because we actually had the public order unit come in for both events, and we had a plan in place. Uh, what you've got, though, is potentially people who, whether it's extreme left or extreme right, wanting to engage in fundamentally uh, criminal acts. And certainly from the, the uh, comments last night at City Hall, you've got somebody, uh, you know, Cedar Harperton, actually advocating for uh, violence. Well, that is where you step over the line into criminality. And, you know, you can say you're doing it, but to actually commit the act is a different thing. So... Uh, we do have an obligation to facilitate peaceful process, which we do on a regular basis. And it can be anything from pipeline issues to indigenous rights uh, to uh, the economic uh, platform, which actually the Yellow Vests had stated they were um, uh, protesting against. Then you have other groups that may or may not join them. And, of course, we keep our eye out for the intelligence information in terms of who's showing up, what might happen. And uh, obviously that's very fluid and evolving, and off, often it happens in the last one or two days part of the event. So it kind of I'll draw the analogy where you had the Raptors. You know, you had two million people show up. Um, I'm not quite sure because I've heard some commentary about that should or shouldn't have happened. I'm not quite sure if you have two million people who want to come to town to celebrate, whether you have a parade or not that you can stop them, one. And then two, preparation for uh, access from so many different points. If you'd had unlimited resources, I'm not sure you could control that either. Obviously, nobody wants a shooting or a stabbing. And, you know, for the most part, uh, when I saw the footage from uh, the Raptors event, it was largely peaceful. People were celebrating uh, being Canadian, the diversity of the city, uh, the fact that you had a sports team win. 
these are the events that policing is faced with now, whether it's the Vancouver riots, uh, when you had, uh, you know, the Stanley Cup going on there a few years back and what happened. Um, so you got to do this balance between public's right to use the space, our obligation to try and maintain public safety, and then when you've got criminality, what do we do in those situations? And G20 is another good example. Uh, on a grander scale. A grander I remember scale. talking with Chief DeCare about that and, yeah. and others as, as you were preparing for that thing. But that's, you know what's going to happen and you're anticipating that there's going to be some pushback and you know that there's going to be some some uh, undesirables as part of that. There's going to be protests. We saw Correct. that. There was a protest, that, for instance, at the G20. Yep. There was a parade down University Avenue, a protest yep. parade that was by and large and, you know, kept under control. Everything was fine. Uh, then it just it blew out of control all of a sudden very quickly. Uh, Correct. And, and I'll say this, uh, certain groups exploit that fact. Sure they do. They exploit the fact that peaceful protest is facilitated. Uh, you know that people will dress in multiple layers of clothing to come out, uh, cause a disturbance, uh, engender a riot, and then quickly, uh, you know, absorb into the crowd of peaceful people so they can't be detected. And we know who largely those groups are. Uh, but again, if they're not committing criminal acts, you can't just go in and arrest people arbitrarily. So it's this whole balance between the Constitution, which states you have the right in a free and democratic society for freedom of expression, assembly. Um, it's when it ventures into either a lawful assembly where you have tumultuous breach of the peace, and these things have all been defined in the courts, and a riot itself, which is a dimension way beyond that. So it's not that the police can just come in and say, I think there might be an unlawful assembly. I think there might be a riot. Let's close down everything. You have to do it on the basis of a very fluid environment. Our deployment is obviously to keep the peace as much as possible. And again, back to the event on Saturday, uh, we had a very quick response with uh, in excess of 50 officers down at uh, Gage Park in a short span of time. Keeping in mind that we're looking at a property in that case, which is 85 acres, uh, you know, 3 million square feet. It's not just a matter, and you know it, you've been in Gage Park. How do mm -hmm. you describe your location? I'm on the east side by the big trees. I'm close to the band shell. Um, I'm, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to pinpoint where exactly uh, you're going to have a confrontation, and it's a very large property. But you've seen some of the pushback, and I've heard from some of the people that were in attendance at that particular event. Let's, let's move on to that then. There's a lot of other stuff I want to get into, too, about hate speech, uh, and we'll have lots of time for, for doing that here. But the, the, the main criticism I've heard was that police were slow to respond. The, yes, there were officers on site, but once things started to get what they thought was out of hand, there were some confrontations, there was some physical violence in, in some cases, some people were injured, uh, that police took too long, in, in their opinion, uh, to actually respond with extra numbers of people to come in and actually try to break this up. Now, and I'll, I'll yep. put this caveat, in. I understand yep. if you're in the middle of something, you know, 10 seconds is too long because you want this thing to end. But but yeah. I heard of this from more than one person that say, look at, uh, yeah, there were a handful of officers there that were quote-unquote monitoring, but when things started to get out of hand, uh, it took way too long for police to come in the numbers that they should have come in to try to quell that. Yeah, and even if we'd been on the property, uh, to your point about, you know, seeming like an eternity, um, again, with a property that's uh, 30 or 85 acres, you know, the time span to respond to that, keeping in mind, we were dealing with issues down at City Hall prior to this, and we'd actually deployed the POU to separate the two uh, groups at that point, and then we've got to respond down to Gage Park, you got physical separation. Uh, let's keep in mind a couple other things. Uh, we reached out through our own internal uh, support network, uh, which is our GLBTQ uh, our committee within our service, 
to the organizers of this. We were asked not to be present for a variety of reasons. We asked to have a recruiting booth. We were denied that, which is fine. That's their right to do so. Uh, so they really want us on the perimeter. So we had officers deployed uh, for that purpose. We also had our uh, public order unit down handling things at City Hall. Um, so, you know, this time span, it's much like Lock Street, I'll say, where we got criticism uh, and we'd had 30 officers coalesced in eight minutes on Lock Street on a Saturday night. These things take time to actually drive the distance, coalesce the uh, people and get. When you've got just uh, people milling about and there's no physical altercation, uh, as soon as it turns to a violent act, then the clock starts ticking to your point and it seems like an eternity. But until you've got you know, that situation. This is the same with any public issue and public demonstrations. People are behaving themselves. It's not problematic. It's when you actually engage in physical acts of violence. And I'll I'll be clear on this. You've got certain groups within that uh, context that are looking for the fight. And you've had, as I said, now you've got somebody stating last night, uh, we need to act in a violent manner. Well, uh, we certainly don't support that. And we're going to be prepared again uh, come uh, this weekend if we have another event. And we've got to look at that. We'll see what City Hall does relative to their decisions about the lawful or unlawful gathering of people. Um, So these are not simple events anymore. It's not just our jurisdiction. This is happening worldwide. But to your point, and I understand that there's a timing element here to, to respond to all of a sudden, hey, we need more, we need more backup here. I, I get that. But the, the counterpoint to that is, well, try to be proactive. Maybe there should have been more officers on site to begin with because there was the potential for this. I mean, every time that this, the Pride Week has come along, uh, especially in the last two or three years, there have been confrontations between mm-hmm. alternative groups that have actually come face-to-face with them. So the potential for that was far greater than it was, say, seven or eight years ago when the, there would be a parade, there'd be a rally and everything else, and everybody kind of just do their own thing. Uh, the the propensity for violence and for hate speech and for, for face-to-face confrontation was yep. much greater. Yep. Did you have enough officers on site to be able to handle that? My view would be yes, uh, keeping in mind the context here. We were not invited onto the onto the event. We were asked not to be at the event, and we remained in the perimeter. So now you've got the fundamental um, you know, request of the GLBTQ. No, we don't want you at a recruiting booth. No, we what, don't if want If they'd you. said, yes, you come on board, what would you have done? How would that have been we different? We would have deployed differently. We would have had people in the crowd pretty much the whole time, like on the property. It's pretty simple. So there would have been more numbers there. Uh, we certainly would have had a greater presence within, and it's a big area to cover, to your point. Uh, you know, where is it going to break out? It could break out at a distance away. We did have officers on the perimeter, on the perimeter, at their request. This is my point. Uh, you're trying to balance uh, the, the requests of certain groups. Uh, they stated they didn't want us there for a particular reason, whether people didn't feel safe or otherwise, which I don't particularly dis- or agree with, but that's okay. We have to respect the request too. So it, it's kind of a, a no-win situation uh, where you're asked not to be there, and then when you're not there, how come you weren't there? And this has happened at other locations. Uh, relative to did we know exactly who was showing up and when? No, we didn't. And that's part of the problem. You've got certain information on social media that does come to pass. Other times it doesn't. So think about the yellow vest protests, which has been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And largely, we've had to intervene a couple of times. We've had a number of small uh, altercations, but not on a regular basis. So again, with the Pride event, that's happened externally. We did prepare for it. We did have extra officers. You know, had we said we're not deploying any additional resources, I wouldn't have had that critical mass with a public order unit that I could have deployed. So in spite of the requests, 
I made a decision as chief to have extra resources available. And then I get into, you know, potentially the criticism from well, why are you spending uh, this overtime to have people present? My view, we made a tactical decision, have them present. And what you saw too is they were deployed very quickly. If you look at the photos, you'll see a large police presence and we had numbers. Uh, got a lot of time and a lot of people that want to get in involved in this. Let me, let me get one call in here. I know we have to go to break in a couple of minutes, but uh, uh, Steve's been waiting for quite some time here. Steve, thanks for your patience. Uh, thank, go ahead for the chief. Hi, Chief. How are you? Very good. Morning, Steve. Good morning. Yeah, my question to you is, has the level of violence in these protests um, uh, risen since the Trump was uh, elected? <laughs> There's a loaded question. Uh, I won't link it to him specifically, but what I think you're seeing is, and this is a worldwide phenomenon, so I'm speaking to it, is you're having uh, the far right emerge. Uh, whether they uh, actually attend or not is a different thing, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, but yes, uh, I think on a global level, you're seeing uh, far more disparate opinions, and then you're seeing people come out. We're seeing it, um, whether it's the far right or the far left, and you've got this tension going on, not only in Canadian society, but more globally. So the potential for violence, and that's why we state, it's one thing to demonstrate peacefully, it's another thing to advocate violence, which I don't think anybody supports. No, I, I, I don't think we do. I just wondered if, like, in, in Canadian uh, protests, in, in Hamilton even, um, has the level of violence risen since, like, even five years ago? Uh, or even since, like, 9-11, maybe. I'm, I'm just curious, because I, 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 I see it now. I never saw it before. I lived in Hamilton mm -hmm. my whole life. Yep. Well, and I think we've seen sporadic. If you require, if you remember, they were trying to occupy uh, Gore Park. Uh, the Black Bloc was involved, and the Black Bloc's quite well known for their tactics to escalate situations, to engage with the police, uh, G20 itself. So what we're seeing, you know, rather than just Hamilton context, I think it's far broader than that. And then what you're seeing is uh, a wider span in terms of viewpoints, and then, of course, that leads to, uh, to friction and all the rest. Our issue as a police service is, does it broach into criminality, which is what I mentioned at the start. You can have peaceful protests that is not anti, or does not uh, hate speech, people expressing their opinions, uh, certainly from an Indigenous perspective, and we just had the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls report come out. Uh, you know, you've got a long history in terms of colonialism, the residential schools, uh, treaty issues are prominent. Um, these are not new things. They're, they're emerging, and certainly the focus on these things is increasing. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chief of Police Eric Gert is here. That's the Chief's Town Hall. Obviously, a lot of our focus uh, in this segment is going to be about what happened uh, during Pride Week and uh, the ensuing uh, actions. And an email right now from uh, Alexis that says that the LGBTQ community, of which I am fully supportive, shot themselves in the foot by refusing uniformed officers. This community must reassess their policy on the matter and opt for safety over personal views vis-a-vis -vis the police. Uh, thank you, Alexis, for the, that email. Uh, and we've talked with members of that board, uh, especially the advisory committee and some of the other members of that community. And uh, I guess there's two sides to every story, but I, I'll, I'll try to get your perspective on this if I could, Chief. Why is there such an acrimonious relationship between that community and, and police? And I think that fundamental assertion is incorrect because you got to look at who the community is. And as I say, we have an internal support network uh, in-house uh, for the service. We've done measures in terms of uh, adjustments for washrooms or trans uh, persons. Uh, you know, we've expanded even the definition to include twin spirit, uh, intersex, 
those who support and our allies. This is a very uh, fluid, uh, uh, you know, committee as well. And you have those people who say they're representing the interests of the entire group. I don't know that that's true. And I think when you talk about the dialogue, and you just heard it from a contrary opinion, it happened last night at City Hall as well. You, you don't necessarily have one person or one particular spokesperson who's representing the interests of all the group. And I think that's important to keep in mind because we continue to reach out. Uh, the deputy appeared last night, and again, you saw the assertions. Uh, you know, we can see you. Of course you can see him because he went in uniform. It was a public meeting, and we attended to listen. Uh, because how are you going to learn unless you listen? Just go back to first principles uh, with First Nations, right? And it's Stephen Covey used the line. He stole it from Indigenous populations. Uh, seek first to understand and then to be understood. Well, unless you're engaged and you're there listening, you're not going to know. Back to the, you know, the group that represents, um, who says they're the spokesperson for this group? It may be one particular person's point of view. And I think what you heard last night, there's all kinds of uh, opinions on it. There's much work to be done. We're aware of that. And we continue to reach out to those groups who do want to. Sometimes we have to meet with five or six different groups. That's fine. Um, let's look at, uh, you know, uh, and not to center her out, but De- Deirdre Pike's been doing training in our service. Well, I was going to ask you about that. I she mean, Deirdre, she's, she has worked for very closely with Hamilton Police Services, uh, and I was glad to hear that, and, yeah. and I know she enjoys that, and she thinks she's making some progress there. I believe she uh, is as well. There's sensitivity. There's a number of issues sure. that Deirdre covers. Uh, and I, I don't know how it's being received by, by the, the, the officers that are involved in this, but, I mean, the fact that she's continuing to do it indicates to me that, that there is some progress being made. But uh, I, I don't know that that's being acknowledged in the, in the community about the work that's going on uh, because there is still, and I know we're going to get into stereotypes here, but there's still this idea that it's us versus them in some circles. I, don't, mm-hmm. I, I agree with you totally. I don't think it's a fair characterization to say that's like that with everybody, that every police officer and everybody in the LGBTQ community are at loggerheads. That's certainly not the case. No, and it's uh, not. And I mean, we're doing work. But the loudest voices are the ones that are heard. Well, quite often. And that's, that's kind of my point, you know. Uh, who says they represent the entire community? I think you have to meet people uh, one-on-one quite often. And there's a broad diversity in terms of viewpoints and their own experience. And as you know, whether it's uh, sexual assault offenses, which we've been working on, uh, let's look at the sexual assault community review team. We expanded out to a broad area of interest on this. We know, particularly in the LGBTQ community, uh, Twin Spirit, that people may or may not disclose for fear of retribution. Um, Our position is we will investigate criminal offenses and uh, proceed in court, but not always because you have to look at the victim's wishes. And that was really the outgrowth of, uh, I'll call it SACERT uh, task force, that they said, you know, it's not just dispositions in courts, it's how the people are approached, how they're listened to, Back to my fundamental premise of you have to listen first to see what people want. This is not just this group. This is all the groups within the community. It can be in the indigenous community. It can be new immigrants. It can be what is their experience in in, uh, countries of origin. Uh, This is much broader than just this particular uh, focus here. And then again, you know, who represents those interests? Well, often it's a one-to-one relationship, and we have to build it one relationship at a time quite often. 
we, we've talked about Deirdre's work and what she does there, but but what else are you doing to to reach out to not just the LGBTQ community, but other communities that also may feel somewhat uh, disenfranchised uh, when it comes to police services and that relationship? Yeah, and because we've heard from this from yeah. the indigenous community right. as well. It's some some facets of it, I should right. say. We need to be careful about about generalizations here. Right. So I just provided a report to our board in light of the Thunder Bay report and talked about our work, which dates back to the early 2000s, particularly with the Indigenous community. Uh, We have done training in-house through the Indian Centre, where we had elders uh, appear, and that's been embraced in our block training. Our senior command, uh, we've been working uh, with the OPP uh, liaison committee as far back as Jim Potts when I was doing training on uh, courses at Robbins. Um, We've had it in terms of our Canadian Police College. We had anthropologists appear. It, it never ends, that work. Uh, so whether it's with Deidre Desne, whether it's uh, in terms of our local community, Six Nations, uh, where you have uh, people who live in that community and people who live in an urban community, uh, it's never ending. So, you know, it's about understanding and listening. You know, I, I met up with, uh, there was the change of ceremony for the RCMP uh, community, and they had a female elder come out. Um, and uh, she said, you can call me Grandma uh, Renee. I said, okay. And she said, you know, my work, not my work, but her work, was to do outreach. And she said, I didn't think I'd start there, but I know there's much work to be done. I said, yeah, we're the same viewpoint. This is a continued path. So that's just one example. But whether it's with the Somalian community, whether it's East Asian community, whether it's with the Muslim community, uh, it's it's ongoing all the time. And one of my positions relative to, uh, it's been stated, well, you should have, this is just one context. You should just have a couple of Aboriginal support liaison officers. I said, well, my view is I want to do further outreach to our entire service. If I just give it to two people, then everything goes to them. I said, where's the learning component? Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's longstanding, continuing. Uh, our cultural diversity and our cultural knowledge it has to be ongoing. Will you ever get there? I don't know that you will. Uh, more globally, uh, you know, the tolerance and understanding uh, between all kinds of communities. And I've had this discussion with, with Deirdre about the word tolerance. Tolerance connotes, oh, you're putting up with it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about understanding cultural diversity and coming to a common place where you understand what's going on. And that's a continuing journey. What about, uh, are there evaluations of, of your officers in with their interaction with the, with some of these groups? I mean, I understand that, okay, you know, Deirdre and others are doing things like this, but once they're out there, once they're on the front line, uh, do you monitor that? Do you, do you have to once in a while call an officer in and say, look at it, we're kind of concerned about your attitude? Sure, and that would come out of public complaints, which we uh, certainly encourage, and that can happen through the OIPRD independently, the Office of the Independent Police Review Director. Uh, There's all systems in place where if you don't want to deal with the police directly, you can deal with the oversight agencies. We do take that uh, seriously. Any assertion of racial bias or uneven treatment, we take extremely seriously, and we encourage people to come forward. And again, if they're not happy coming into a station, that's fine. And we have literature available at all our front counters, so you don't even really need to interact with a police officer, but you can do it online. You can reach out to the OIPRD. We have the SIU as an oversight if there's a potential criminal action where there's serious bodily harm or death. 
the OCPC, which governs uh, oversight for our boards uh, and systemic issues. Obviously, the Thunder Bay report was commissioned by Jerry McNeely, the OIPRD, because of longstanding issues. And I've read the report, and I look at where there may be. The Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls report just came out. It's well over 1,000 pages. I've looked at the executive summary. I've looked at the police applications. There's always work to be done. And, you know, I, I cited this last week when I said it. The opening paragraphs talk about understanding and relationships. And that's why I talk about whether it's a one-on-one, whether it's a group setting, you have to develop contacts or relationships. 905-645-3221, start 9900. We've got a few minutes left, and I know there are some other things that we wanted to talk about. Uh, one in particular from uh, Gary, uh, email bkelly900chml.com. What is going on with organized crime here? Yet another murder, which we are told had that association. Uh, how do you deal with something like this? I know that you have task forces that, that, that look into these sorts of things, but uh, there seems to be a, a pattern that seems to be developing here, especially in the last 18 to 24 months. Yeah, and you've raised a good point. It's off, uh, often interagency because uh, you know, we're talking about organized crime, and I think what he's probably alluding to is what we call traditional organized crime, uh, but there's also other facets of organized crime. Uh, there's the uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs that, that are involved in organized crime. There's groups that work in cells in organized crime, but I think what he's talking about is TOC, traditional organized crime. Uh, Often there's connections, and we know it through the literature, through Montreal to New York City. uh, You know, they're going to go into ventures where they can make money illegally. And, you know, you don't have to stray far from the common culture, whether it's the Sopranos or the Godfather, to understand the mechanics of how it works. Uh, But... Uh, in terms of intelligence information, long-term projects that we're working on, homicide investigations where we've been involved, for example, most recently with York and led to criminal charges. Um, This is complex stuff. Uh, They're not new to it and they're expanding out in terms of, I'll call it their criminal entrepreneurialism. And we've got to look at multiple facets. Uh, There are no geographic borders for them. So we're involved with other agencies, whether it's OPP, York, Toronto, uh, whatever the jurisdiction is. And then more globally, whether it's down in the States or even internationally. So um, they're complex investigations. one other about gun control, uh, and I know that uh, Bill Blair, who's the minister now, former chief of police of Toronto, uh, is uh, is purporting to, to put a bill forward right now that's going to give municipalities uh, more control over uh, the use of handguns, or the, and, uh, which some people are characterizing as passing the buck down to the municipalities. Uh, if that does pass, though, if they, I don't think they're going to be able to do it in this session, uh, but if it does come to pass with uh, this government or subsequent government, uh, how does that impact what you're going to be doing? And, and uh, and maybe walk us through exactly what the implications of that are. Well, on the two sides of the equation, it's certainly uh, much broader in terms of the states, but you've got tension from the lawful gun owners who comply with all the restrictions, and they're quite vast in terms of whether you've got to have a PAL uh, certificate to carry and transport weapons, all that stuff. And you've got the illegal market, which in large part uh, is either from stolen weapons or from uh, the American Um, sources of illegal transmission of firearms. So what happens is you get the interplay between those who are doing it lawfully and say, well, why are you restricting this? I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a lawful gun owner who complies with the laws and locks it in a gun box and does all the things I'm supposed to do for transport. And then you've got the illegal market. And let's just talk about something you wouldn't think of as a firearm.
firearm, which is uh, flare guns that are converted over to fire 22s. So, you know, you purchase a flare gun, do the transmission uh, or do the modifications, and maybe you can fire one or two rounds, but for the purposes that you're going to use them for. So you've got this whole tension between legal and illegal. Uh, will we ever eliminate the black market? Uh, that's, that's a much broader question. Uh, but then you've got sources, uh, as I say, with either stolen firearms or restricted firearms that are coming up through the states. Um, every piece that helps that eliminates firearms in the possession of criminals, I'm in support of. Uh, will you actually achieve that? Well, that's a much broader discussion. Well, and, and we're getting into terminology here, too. I know that there's another bill that's talking about banning of assault weapons, and, and they're getting some pushback on that, too. I, I still don't understand. I understand there are gun collectors. I get that. Mm-hmm. And there are some people that are what they call recreational shooters. Uh, but assault weapons, I think, is a different class altogether, and I can't understand exactly why. And, and that's a debate that's going on in the States right now, too. Uh, but to your point, and because and, we've seen this happen with uh, the summer of violence, the, sum, the gun, summer of the gun in Toronto a few years ago, and, and we've sadly had some incidents like this too. Uh, and some cities, Mayor Tory and other mayors around the country have said, well, we're going to try to ban handguns in our community. Uh, is that more for sh- I mean, can you actually enforce something like that? Well, and let's look at the internet and mail order. Um, we did an investigation a few years back where a young offender had a weapon, which was an AK-47, that he ordered off the internet. You're kind of like, pardon? And then had ammunition as well. And you're like, how does that happen? So then you've got the tentacles out in there. You've got the source market, you know, our closest neighbor who does manufacture these weapons. I'm with you. I'm not quite sure why you'd need an AK-47 for home use or target practice. Uh, that's my particular point of view. Um, but the idea is they are there, they're available. You can, you know, in certain cases, mail away and get it. Um, and certainly the tolerance for high capacity weapons in the States. I think probably a telling comment is post New Zealand is, you know, their legislators woke, woke up and said, I'm not really sure why anybody would need those. So the discussion is certainly uh, very active on this point. Um, but we've seen the use of those weapons uh, where and often of all with hate crimes where we have somebody for whatever reason uh, has that ideology and then says well I'm going to you know uh, do this act um, and gain notoriety or whatever their particular point of view is which none of us really clearly understand I, I just don't get it. As you work though with other departments and I know you do you do work with the RCMP and with OPP yep. and, and other agencies on this too uh, and as you track this, uh, is there, uh, off the top of your head, a breakdown on percentages as to how many of these illegal weapons are coming from across the border? How many are actually yeah. stolen weapons that are being sold on the black market? Yeah, and where we can trace them, this is obviously done through uh, the larger groups that you've referred to. Uh, so, yes, we do tra- trace them. We do have the FATE program. And we do look at where we can identify um, those weapons or serial numbers and whether they're filed off and all those other things. Uh, yes, we do trace that. So you get an idea then, is where exactly you can place resources to try to stem the tide of some of what's happening here anyway? Uh, not necessarily from police agencies sometimes, because now you're talking about CBSA uh, crossing at the border. Uh, we do have, you know, large border crossings. Are people able to secrete those firearms in and bring them across? And, you know, yes, they get arrested. And, you know, I think they do tremendous work down there, but just look at the volume. And then to my point, you know, whether you, you mail away and for whatever reason, somebody mails it across the border, you're like, pardon? So, you know, that's, that's postal service. You got CBSA. You've got lots of agencies that are doing work in this area. It doesn't necessarily fall to the municipal 
uh, service. Obviously, we uh, are active on our investigations trying to find firearms. We've had a number of arrests related to drugs where firearms are also seized. I guess the disturbing part is when we do media releases on this, it really doesn't garner all that much attention anymore. So you go, okay, money, Are drugs. we numb to it? Uh, I think in part, uh, there's certainly an expectation where there's uh, drugs, there's guns. Um, so we're certainly, um, you know, when we're doing our investigations, uh, we'll look at seizing not only the drugs, the cash, and the firearms, but yeah, it's disturbing. And of course, our emergency response unit go do these warrants quite often. Uh, we uh, suspect quite often there'll be a firearm when there's drugs. That's a concern, though. I mean, we've seen this well, in, in this business, too. I mean, uh, it's people's reaction to these things, that, that we're inundated with stories like this all the time. And after a while, we just figure that that's the new normal. And, it, and boy, we're in trouble if we start getting that mindset. Well, an interesting comment, again, it was the U.N. ambassador for the States who was speaking last night at the event, uh, talking about the culture of violence, uh, whether it's Hollywood or elsewhere, and you see the prevalence of firearms used there, and, uh, you know, whether it's criminals or good guys or bad guys, whatever you want, uh, for the action, okay, we need a big, uh, you know, firefight situation, um, and not to pick on a particular movie, but look at John Wick and the number of homicides that are committed during the course of that movie, and that's viewed as entertainment. That's troubling. Last question uh, from email from uh, Lorraine, who's watch, listening to the program today. Uh, is there an investigation going on to what happened at Gage Park last Saturday, and is there a potential for charges to be laid? Yes to both questions. Okay. That's ongoing then? Well, and the big piece I'd say is, uh, and it was actually uh, Chief Saunders mentioned it yesterday in the news, you know, we've got all these people present. Uh, we need witnesses. We need complainants. In certain cases, we may have uh, complainants who are victims who are also aggressors and may be under conditions uh, not to be in places or do certain things. So what happens quite often is people don't want to come forward as complainants. doesn't mean we won't make arrests and we won't do charges, uh, but you need uh, witnesses and testimony because, of course, the test in the courts is uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, we need people to tell us what happened. Somebody was there. Somebody had eyes on it. Correct. Uh, Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert, always a pleasure, Chief. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.